For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? If you have a Bible with you, would you go ahead and turn it to Galatians chapter 3? If you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. The text is in your order of worship. It's in that little trifold thing. If you don't own a Bible, there are a few on the back table back there, our connect table. I'd love to give one to you. Just go grab one. Uh, you can take that home with you. That's our gift to you. We have plenty. It's just good to have it in front of you. It's good to know that I'm not making this stuff up, right? I mean, that's not going to help anybody. So grab one and get it in front of you. Um, I said this in the early service. I'll say it again. I want to I want to thank John Pearson who came and filled the pulpit for me last Weeks so that I could get away and spend some concentrated time in prayer and reflection on where the Lord might be leading us. That, that week was great. The time with the elders at the end of the week was great. So I want to thank him and thank you guys for giving me that time. But now we turn back to Galatians. Next week we're going to start our Advent series. For those of you who are not familiar with that language, Advent is the, the, the four Sundays preceding Christi- uh, Christmas. It is, it is kind of a time that, of longing. Right? I know that a lot of times we think that we sing Christmas songs and Christmas hymns leading up to Christmas. Traditionally, the church has not done that. The church has actually sung songs that, that begin this sense of longing, this sense of, of, of wanting, of, of, of leaning into the celebration of Christ's birth until the joyful um, Christmas Eve uh, and the, our Christmas Eve service, which is coming uh, here in this place on Christmas Eve um, but Advent is a time for us to begin leaning into that. But this week, we return once more into, into uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Now, if you've been here for a good bit of this series, you'll probably begin to notice that Paul seems, the writer of this letter, Paul, seems kind of obsessed with what to do with the law. Like, what do we do with this thing? That, what are Christians to do with the law? And this is because we are constantly and consistently mixing things up. If salvation, if being rescued from our sins is and reconciled to God is not by what we do, as Christians believe, but instead through faith in Jesus alone, what do we do with God's law? And that's the question that the gospel of grace draws out. It, it, it logically comes from that. And so Paul goes to great lengths to speak to it. He has said that attempting to be right with God through rule keeping, you know, a couple of weeks ago we saw this, that all that really shows that we're rule breakers. Trying to keep the law only shows that we are law breakers and that instead we need someone to bear the weight of our rule breaking, to, to bear our curse before God. And now, this week, he begins to move into where exactly this thing we call the law fits in God's plan of salvation. How do we order law and freedom? That's the question we're taking to the text today. If, you'll, uh, if you have your place in Galatians chapter 3, if you'd stand, as is our habit here, in honor of God's word. Be reading chapter 3, verses 15 through 22. This is God's word, friends. It is, it is, God has spoken, he has revealed himself in it and through it. So let's hear it in that way. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. 
This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put into place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, into this time we ask your your special presence to preach to us. Uh, Arouse us, Lord, because we are sleepy. Some of us physically so, others of us spiritually so. We need you to come and to rouse us from our slumber. Awaken us to the glory of the gospel, to your glory. Awaken us to to an image of our need and Christ's great provision. And so draw us again by faith to yourself. Holy Spirit, this is your time. We ask that you would would come and, and open our hearts, open our minds, that Jesus, you in fact, would preach your gospel to us. Let the work that you have done, Jesus, and your, your, your perfect abiding work come to the fore and let the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord. You alone hold the words of eternal life. And so speak, for your servants listen. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. We have a new buzzword in our culture. That, uh, that buzzword is quarantine. It's an unfortunate buzzword. It's not exactly popular in the sense that all of us want that. None of us want it. But it's, but it's come to the fore. You know, a few weeks ago... When we're beginning to go through all of the cases of Ebola that were on, found on American soil, I had two separate people within two days from this church, who will remain nameless, um, come to me and declare that they were convinced that the zombie apocalypse was upon us. Um, it's just too much watching of Walking Dead. But anyway, it's like this idea of quarantine has become a national buzzword. The purpose of quarantine is to, to isolate, Right? It's to isolate a potentially deadly condition. It's to bring it under controlled variables to watch and then to treat. That's the whole point. It makes symptoms more visible, right? Because you can tell what the disease is doing and not what possibly any other possible variables are doing. It makes the symptoms more visible. You're more able to treat and protects others. Now, the Bible would argue that the most deadly condition in all of creation isn't cancer, And it's not Ebola, and it's not AIDS. The most deadly condition in all of creation is sin. And in fact, has a 100% mortality rate. This morning, Paul places the law within a framework in which it works to quarantine sin. To draw it out until such time as someone could come who would deal with it. So as we come to this text, we're going to look at it in three ways. We're going to look at which came first, the law or promise. We're going to look at uh, why it came at all. And then lastly, we're going to look at how to use it. Okay, Which came first, why it, that being the law, came at all, and then how we use it. Okay, And there's an outline in your bulletin that's helpful. Let's begin with what came first. If you've still got your Bible open, look down at verses 15 and 16. Paul has, begin, has, has been, throughout this letter, addressing criticism that have come to him, right? He, he planted these churches in what is now southern Turkey, and he, he moved on from them because the, the city was not exactly happy with him planting these churches. And 
And one of them, he got stoned to death. Very unfortunate. But he, he had moved himself, he had moved on, but behind him came these other teachers who had told these new Christians, these burgeoning churches, Paul was confused. They had gotten it wrong. He misunderstood his Bible. Because if he, had, if he had understood it correctly, he would have understood that God gave the law to us to show us what to do to be right before him. How to be reconciled to him. And Paul's argument is that they have taken things out of order. He says this. He says, let me speak in human terms. No one sets aside or adds to a covenant made by men. But the promise was spoken to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say to offsprings as to many, but to one. And to his offspring, which is Christ. Now, stop there. This is a little knotted up for us. Because we're not familiar with the the Old Testament. Probably as well as some that were hearing him for the first time. So follow me. When Paul talks about the covenant, okay, that's that's a technical term in Christianese for God's rescue plan. It's God's rescue plan. You see, our Bible is very clear on the fact that the world is broken. It was broken by us. We're we're to blame for that. Uh, We had betrayed God, broke relationship with him by seeking independence from him. Because we were made for a dependent relationship with him. uh, but, But we sought our own way, turned away from him. And this ruined us. When I mean us, I mean all of us. Not a few of us, not the notorious of us, but all of us. We turned away from the source of all life and joy and goodness, leaving us only with death and fear and brokenness, bearing the weight of our betrayal of God. But God promised to make it right. And then, in Genesis chapter 12, he began to work out that promise by choosing, picking this guy, this dude named Abraham. Okay? So when Paul talks about a covenant, he's talking about this promise. Okay? Uh, a covenant is simply a to, to kind of skim it down to, to something that's manageable for us. A covenant is a promise-bound relationship. A relationship bound by explicit promises to us. And God chooses Abraham and says, I'm going to deal with sin, I'm going to deal with humanity's betrayal through your family. And Paul's point here is that once a covenant is made, once, that, once the, the terms are, are stated, you don't go changing them. And if that's the case with a man-made covenant, how much more so with God's? Okay? And then he talks about this offspring stuff. Some of your Bibles say seed, right? Uh, now, we can miss this, but if we remember earlier points in the letter, it's easier. Because some of us will read that and be like, this is, the, this is the most ridiculous argument I've ever read. Does Paul not understand offspring is a collective term? What does he mean, offsprings? Like, that's not even a word. Like, what, is, what does he mean by that? Uh, you know, does, does he not get this? Yes, Paul gets it, okay? He knew this language way better than we do. So he must be making a different point, and he is. He's going to clarify this in a second. But remember, Paul has already, remember where we've come from. If you've been here, you'll remember this. Others of you, let me draw you in. Paul has addressed over and over in this letter, especially in chapter 2, the idea of division. That there could be two different classes of Christians. Two different classes of, of these people of God. You've got these folks over here, and they keep the law. And then you've got these other folks here. And, and so, Paul has been addressing this throughout this letter. His point here is that God's promise was for one family. One offspring. Not offsprings. Not multiple families. Not multiple peoples of God. One new Family, one new humanity centered on Jesus, not multiple ones centered on cultural practices, even if those cultural practices were given by God. Remember, these other teachers are coming to these new churches and they're telling them, yeah, 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 I get it. Jesus is great. But if you really want to please God, if you really want to be reconciled, you have to adhere to the law. Because you see, Jews in the first century, they had a category for, 
for Gentiles who, who worshipped the one true God but didn't become Jews. They called them God-fearers. They're God-fearers. And yes, they're, they're better than pagans. I mean, at least they acknowledge the one true God, but they're still not Jews. They still don't measure up. Paul is striking against this by saying the promise was always for one worldwide family centered not on law, but on Christ. And that brings us to verses 17 and 18. Look there, he says, here's what I mean. The law set in place 430 years later does not cancel the covenant instituted by God so as to do away with it. For the blessing is by law, then it is not by promise. But God bestows it freely to Abraham by promise. Okay, listen, if you've been here, you know I've said this before, but we need to hear it again and again and again. Paul is saying, think about the order. Think about the order, folks. We need to understand how this happens. The law of Moses came long after God told Abraham, I'm going to do this, and I promise to do this. And even, even when God gave them the law, he had already saved them from Egypt. He already redeemed them out of slavery and was leading them into the land that he had made for them. And then he gave them the law. Paul is saying, if you think the law makes you right before God, you are saying that God has annulled the promise to Abraham. Now, listen, here, here, here's what he means. God promised in Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing. I'm going to rescue humanity. I'm going to make things right through you. 430 years later, he gave a law. If that law is what then is the basis of the promise, if you get to the promise by keeping the law, what did he do for 430 years before that? The whole point is that, no, 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 you don't understand. The law came after the promise, and God didn't change terms. Now, some of you may think, what's the big deal? God changes his mind. We all change our mind. We just change the terms of the agreement a little bit. That is because we don't understand the covenant part. So God chooses Abraham in Genesis 12. In Genesis 15, there is this really bizarre story for us. Okay? Genesis 15, God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham. And then Abraham says to him, how am I supposed to believe you? How am I going to know you're going to do this? And God says, I got it. Here's what we're going to do. Abraham's like, all right. What is it? I need you to find animals. Got it. I got animals. I need you to cut them in half. Okay. And then I need you to put them on either side of a path. Now, I know most of us are thinking, like, this is what happens on Halloween at, like, cemeteries, right? Like, this is what people do. But this is, if you were in, in, in the ancient Near East, this would make perfect sense to you. Because in the ancient Near East, this is what people did when they made a covenant with each other. When they made a covenant, they would do this. It, would, it was called a self-maledictory oath. And calling curses down on yourself. You would, you would cut these animals, you would put them in a, in a row, making a path between them. The two people who made the covenant would walk between them. And it was their way of saying, if I break my promise to you, I will be like this animal. Let me be cut off, destroyed, cursed. And so God tells Abraham to go do this, and Abraham starts freaking out. Because he knows, I don't, I'm about to make promises with the God of the universe to keep my end of things. And I don't measure up. And then God did this crazy thing. He puts Abraham to sleep after Abraham was chasing some birds away. It was very strange. And then he puts Abraham to sleep. And then God goes through the pieces by himself. It is God saying, I'm going to do this myself. I don't need you. I don't need you. As a matter of fact, whether or not you stay faithful, true, doesn't matter. I know you won't. 
I'm going to do this myself. And if I don't accomplish what I say, let me be destroyed. God won't change terms because he has promised not to. In fact, he has called down curses on himself if he were to change that. To say that he would, would mean that God has broken his covenant. The law came after the promise, meaning that the law can't be the condition upon which we are reconciled to God. Keeping the rules cannot possibly be the way that makes you right before God. So why do it at all, right? That raises the question. Now that we've got the order down, it raises, why the law? And it raises that question because since humanity turned away from God, we have become convinced, convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have to earn our way back. We seem to think that God is like those dudes who stand at the, at the entrance to the line for the roller coaster. All right, and they've got their little measuring stick out. And you've got to, you must be at least this tall to ride. You know that, right? Some of you still have a hard time with that. But like, it's, it's there, right? And we're hoping that, we hope that that's, that's what God is. And he's holding it. He's very stern looking. And if we, if we just work hard enough, we'll stretch up and ah, I can get in. Like that's, that's the way we think. But if that isn't, isn't how God works, as Paul just argued, then why keep the law at all? And Paul asks the same thing there in verse 19, right? He says, that, why then the law? And he answers it with this. It was added for the sake of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise was made. Now, if you have your own Bible with you and you have a pen, I want you to take it out because I want you to underline something, okay? I want you to underline two words. You ready? First, I want you to underline the word added, and then I want you to underline the word until, Okay? If something is added, that means that it was not original, right? It was not original. It was added later. It's, it's not something that was part of the plan. It was, it was brought in at a later point. And if it was added until, that implies there comes a time in which it no longer applies. It is something that was added until something else. In other words, those two words provide a parenthesis, for lack of a better word. A parenthesis around this. Now, some of you, especially if you've been a Christian a long time, you're probably getting a little nervous right now because you think that what I'm saying is that God's law doesn't matter. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Stay with me. Paul is very clear. The law is divine. That's what he means when he says the thing about angels and a mediator, and that's just bizarre, and most scholars can't, can't completely figure out what he's talking about there. What, what at least we know is that if, if he's talking about anything, it's divine. Okay, This is from God. It's not something weird and made up. It's from God, certainly from him. But the purpose of the law has to do with that phrase, added for the sake of transgressions. Okay? Now, that's a little tricky. Not everyone's in agreement on that, but let me give you what, what I think is the best way to take that, all right? The word transgression is not the same as the word for sin. They're, not, they're, they're kind of dynamically equivalent, but they have various nuances. And here, here's what the nuances are. Transgression is doing something you know that you shouldn't do. Something you know you shouldn't do. Sin can be betraying God even if you aren't aware of it. But you can't commit a transgression unless you know it. Sin is worthy of judgment, but transgression is worse. So Paul is saying that God added the law to take sin and bring it into the category of transgression. And he did that, or to understand why he did that, we have to go back to the notion of quarantine. God promised to deal with our sin through Abraham's family, but there's a problem with Abraham's family. 
They're just as jacked up as the rest of us are. They're just as messed up as you and I are. There's nothing special about them in terms of humanity. They are the same. So God instituted the law after redeeming them from Egypt as a way of quarantining his people from the world. Now listen, when I say that, what I do not mean is to keep them unpolluted from the world. Right? Not to keep them unpolluted from the world, but as a, as a way to, as, as Paul says in another place, to show the exceeding sinfulness of sin. In other words, he did it to show how bad the problem is. Because you and I seem to be often convinced that if we just had the right rules, we could keep them. Like if we, if we uh, I, I know I, I don't measure up, I don't, but, if, but if you just tell me the right things to do, I could do it. They had the right things to do. They had all the right things to do. And they couldn't keep them. And you know that's the way it is. The quickest way to get someone to break a rule is to tell them what the rule is. Right? And if you don't think this, could you hang out with my kids for a little while? Okay? And then just give them a new rule. Hang out with anybody's kids for a little while and give them a new rule. Like, this, is what, this is how this works. We give them a rule. We give ourselves a rule. You know, we're about to come up. Holidays are coming. Right? Holidays are coming. You know what happens after holidays? Diets. That's what happens after holidays. And we're going to give ourselves a rule, and then a week later, a day later, maybe an hour, we're going to break it. The quickest way to get someone to break rules is tell them what it is in the first place. But God quarantined sin, and he did this until the promised offspring came. That is Jesus, the one who would actually deal with it. And that stuff he talks about, a mediator there in verse 20, again, that's... that's That's harping on the notion that God didn't intend to keep the quarantine forever. He wanted one family because he is one. Not one group called the Jews that had the law and one group that didn't. Okay, And that brings us down to the last two verses to see low to high. Look there. Paul says, the next logical question. Therefore, is the law opposed to or against God's promise? He says, not at all. For if a law was given that was able to give life, then righteousness would be from the law. But the scripture has imprisoned all under sin so that the promise might come to those who believe through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay? The next logical question comes up. Okay? Well, if the law was given to show how exceedingly sinful sin is, to, to bring sin and transgression, does that mean the law and the promise are against each other? Paul says, no. The only reason why you and I would think that, that it's either by law or by grace, and we have to, those things fight each other. The only reason we see the law as opposed to grace is because we don't, rem- we don't understand what it's for. That is like saying antibiotics and your thermometer are opposed to one another. But that's ridiculous. Do they both help you with the problem? Yes, they, but they do different things. No one thinks if you stick a thermometer in your mouth, you're going to get better. Right? No one thinks that if they keep the law, they're going to get better. It's a thermometer. It's not the, it's not the cure. That's what he means when he says no law was given which could give righteousness. You know, we have got to get out of God as the roller coaster line guard dude. Like, that is not who he is. The very first of the Ten Commandments says, you're going to worship, love the Lord your God, worship him only, right? The, the greatest of the commandments that when Jesus was asked and, and, and Andrew read it, the greatest, he says, you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, these are about relationship. They're not about business. You can't independently work to make yourself good enough when the first command is to enter into a dependent relationship with the God you were made for. One of the purposes of the law, friends, is to bring us low. It's to show us that we are broken. That we are needy. 
It's to show us that all that we've actually earned is God's judgment. It is meant to humble us. And Paul says it is meant to humble us so that for the purpose of the promise, so that the promise can come to us through faith in Christ. We couldn't do it for ourselves, so God became flesh to do it for us. And so long as we think, listen to me, so long as you and I think, I'm doing fine. All I really need is a little cleaning up. I need a spot check here and there, but really, I'm all right. Hair sticks up in the back. But other than that, I'm fine. Like, as long as we think this is my problem, you will never look to Jesus. You don't need a savior. And so the law is there to, to reflect us. When we see ourselves in the mirror of God's law, when we see ourselves in, in, in all that it asks of us, we see our need. We see how broken we are, and we must look up to find a rescuer. So now we get to how we use it. Check back in if you checked out so we can bring this home, okay? First, let's look at getting the grade. Listen, first of all, if you're you're a Christian in this place, stay with me for a second because it would be easy to think right now that this does not apply to you. Very easy to think. Like, Rick, I got the whole salvation by grace alone thing. I got that. I got grace alone through faith alone and Jesus alone. Got it, okay? You, you know, and I, I believe, you would never use the law. You would never think, I'm going to use the law to make myself right before God. But how about to make yourself closer to God? How about to make yourself more pleasing to Him? See, Christians are great with getting into camps. We get into these camps and we focus on one part of the Bible's teaching, one thing that's commanded of us. We think that's great, and then we... We ignore all the other parts and then we judge others by whether or not they're keeping the part that we like. We don't say we're better than other Christians. No, no, no. We never say that. We say we're simply more consistent. We're more consistent than those other poor schmucks. Right? We have camps. Let me explain a few of them. There's the missional camp. Right? If you're in the missional camp, we we, we seek to reach the lost. We're following Jesus. We're meeting people where they are and, 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 and not trying to get them to come to us. And, and that those who don't, those that, that aren't meeting people where they are and trying to share Jesus with them, they're just not following Jesus. I don't know what's wrong with them. They're just not following Jesus. Then there's the theological camp, which is rampant in our tradition. Theological camp, we, we pour over the Bible, we pour over our theology books, and we get all these right opinions. We get our theology straight. We're serious about God's truth. And those that don't study like we do or, or agree with us, they're clearly not about God's truth. Then there's the progressive camp. If you're in the progressive camp, we, we show God's love and acceptance to people no matter where they are in life. And those that don't, those that refuse to just meet, just, just kind of love and accept people where they are, they're clearly not reading the Gospels, right? They're clearly not seeing what Jesus did. And then there's the culture warrior camp. Serious for God's truth, combating the degradation of culture. And those that don't seek to do that, they're just compromising. Filthy compromisers of God's word. Now, here's the thing about all that. I'm just as much in one of those camps as any of us are. I'll leave you to guess which one. Uh, But here's what we all have in common. We pick what we're passionate about. We find places in God's word that speak to those passions, and they do. And then we ignore all the other things that he is about. In other words, 
we use the law, we use those commands to make ourselves seem better. The law no longer shows us our need. What it does is shows how good we are, how great we are, how obedient, how compliant, how wonderful we are before God. So missional folks, you're about reaching lost people. Great. So was Jesus. Have you ever thought, though, that you need to make sure that you know him well enough through his word to communicate actual truth about him to others and not just your ideas? Progressive folks, you're about loving people. Great, so was Jesus. Have you ever thought that Jesus loved people not by telling them they are fine, but by showing them they are thirsty? And then quenching that thirst with his gospel. Theological folks, you're about the truth. Great, so was Jesus. Have you ever thought that theology, if it doesn't create action, if it doesn't extend into activity, isn't actually believed at all? It's just spoken. Culture warrior. You're about being salt and light. Great. So was Jesus. Have you ever thought that the kind of change Jesus brought wasn't through appealing to the Roman governor, but it was instead by offering himself to the broken? You are not pleasing to God because of your pet issue. Now, here's what I don't want you to do don't drop your pet issue. Pet issue's great. Jesus is about those things. Just stop using it to gauge your righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness, not our pet projects. Now, that's getting the grade. Now, letting it work. Look, the other side of what I just said is we often pick certain rules that we resonate with. We pick those rules that we resonate with, often because of our stories, whatever's gone on in our life. And then we assume that God cares more about those things than others. And we do that because we fear what will happen uh, if, if it's found out that we don't measure up. We fear what will happen if, it, if someone sees that I'm not really who I say I am. I'm not really as good as I say or, or I don't really keep these rules like I want people to think. Listen, the work of the law is to show us how deep the problem goes. The work of the law is to drive us beyond itself, beyond ourselves, and into the waiting arms of another. That is what the law is supposed to do. If you look at yourself honestly in the light of God's law, I don't care who you are or where you've come from, you will not measure up. God's law demands perfection, not sincerity. He doesn't give high fives for effort. God's law demands perfection, You will not measure up, but you don't have to. God isn't asking you to. He's not asking you to measure up. Jesus has measured up for you. So let the law do what it was supposed to do, to show you what you were meant to be, what I was meant to be, to show us how far far we have fallen short, and then to drive us into the waiting arms of Jesus. And when it does that, it actually frees us. It, it, it frees us so that we can seek to follow Christ, to seek to be conformed to his image without the pride that comes from thinking we're doing well and the fear that comes when we're not doing so well. You are accepted because of Jesus, and so you can fully seek to honor him by seeking to look like him. In other words, you can be free to actually keep the law. 
The great thing about quarantines, friends, uh, and when I say that, I mean particularly this one that we have this outbreak of currently, the one for Ebola, is that when someone comes out of it cured, when they leave quarantine cured, they have the antibodies in their blood, in their plasma, to actually help cure others. See, when the law does its work, it drives us to Jesus for grace. And then we can go to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family members with the same cure that we have received. The finished and perfect work of our Savior. Would you pray with me? Lord, everyone in this room is in the same need on some level. Some of us who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, we're in need of coming again to the cross, for seeing our sin for what it is, for seeing what it costs, but then delighting in the fact that you freely took that from us. Not asking anything of us but to return to you. Others of us, Lord, we, we've never done that. And we struggle with fear, and we struggle with pride, and we struggle with insecurities, not knowing, do we measure up? Do we measure up? Am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? And the answer is no. And so, Lord, I pray for my friends here this morning who may be dealing with that. I pray as they struggle that you would press upon them, no, they do not, but they do not have to. Would you bathe this whole place, bathe all of us in the grace of the gospel this morning? And we may, may be free to see what the law is for. To run to Jesus. And then in the freedom of the children of God to pursue holiness. Not to get anything from you, but because we've gotten everything from you. And now, Lord, propel us into worship. Propel us both through the word and through the sacrament, but propel us to Thank you to give praise to you with a grateful heart. This is all we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're fine. Pretty-